Okay. Oh yeah, son of thunder. I take it. I take it as Dan. <laughs> he represents that remark. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're we're doing Hebrews 10, and we're on verse 5. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the blood atonement here in Hebrews. You may have noticed that. And I, I think there's a good reason for it. One of the things we discussed, anybody hear the radio show yesterday? Well, a lot of people. Uh, one of the things I mentioned is that they didn't, for some reason, this purpose-driven gospel doesn't seem to worry about the blood atonement, and they don't think it's that important. They, they think you can get saved without being concerned about such things. But why in the world do we, we've been Hebrews eight, Hebrews nine, Hebrews ten? We're still on the topic. Now, does God waste ink, or is it important? Amen. It's, it's very important, and so. If it's that important that they have three chapters of the Bible that are talking about the blood atonement, then clearly it should have a place in evangelical preaching and theology. If you withhold evidence in court, it's a crime. That's a good point. That's withholding evidence. That's evidence. The shed blood of Christ. That's evidence. Amen. I agree. Hebrews 10.5. Well, it says in verse 4, "...for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Now we go to verse 5, Hebrews 10, 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Okay, and then he goes on and says, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the roll of the book. It is written of me. To do thy will, O God. So we have a citation here of Psalm 46 through 8. Now there's somewhat of a difference between the Masoretic text, which is what our Old Testament, the Old Testament Hebrew that our Bibles are a translation of, and the Septuagint. And here we're following, this is following the Septuagint rather than the Masoretic text. But uh, Dan, could you look up Psalm 46 through 8 and read that so we can get the sense of what the Hebrew uh, translation was, the translation from the Hebrew was like? Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will. O oh my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips. O oh Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Wow. Amen. Maybe we should follow that. Amen. Don't conceal anything. Don't conceal anything. All right, now, so part of that is cited here. And the main significant difference from the Masoretic text is this, a body thou hast prepared for me. 
That the word soma body shows up in the Septuagint is not in the Masoretic, and there's a point being made here about that that Jesus came in a real physical body. And then there are these the passages about the sacrifices, and we looked at a little bit of that last week. But let's um, con- continue to look at some cross references. Uh, Dean, if you could do Genesis three fifteen. And Denise, Isaiah 7.14. And Norm, 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Eclodorus, 2 John 1.7. And I'm going to look up some. Uh, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee thy seed and her seed, which shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Yeah, that's the very first promise of Messianic promise in the Bible. And I think the reason that's significant about a body that was prepared for me is that there's a promise all the way in Genesis that this, there would be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And so Jesus needed to be born of a woman and thus come with a real body. Here I have a citation from William Lane. Um, he says, The basis for the consecration of the new covenant community to the servants of God is the unrepeatable offering of the body of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of the will of God. In, de- in developing this point, the writer makes effective use of homiletical midrash, citing Old Testament, Old T- Old Testament texts and commenting on it. Let me talk about that. It's always good to learn something. Have you ever heard of Midrash? Midrash is a Jewish commentary on the Scripture. And the Midrash was eventually, you know, was quoted and handed down verbally, through verbal tradition, eventually written down. And one of the interesting things about the New Testament is that some of the ways the Old Testament used is very similar to Jewish Midrash. And Midrash would be not the authoritative text, but taking the text and making commentary on it. And so that's what's going on here. This author of Hebrews is doing this. And uh, homiletical would mean preaching, citing the Old Testament text and commenting on it. Uh, he appeals to Psalm 46 through 8, which is actually Psalm 39, 7 through 9 in the Septuagint, to demonstrate that it had been prophesied in Scripture that God would accord superior status to a human body as the instrument for accomplishing His will over the sacrificial offerings prescribed by law. Amen. Now, it's interesting to read scholarly material on this that some people are concerned because it looks like this is kind of a loose use of Scripture compared to what we would do. But some of the more recent studies have pointed out that Midrash was an accepted Jewish means of commenting on Scripture and that this Hebrews being written to Jewish believers would be readily accepted by them. And so there's a use of Midrash in in Hebrews. And uh, people say, well, then can we do the same thing? Can we sort of do our own Midrash and 
Um, and I'd say no, because I'm not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but whoever wrote Hebrews was. Amen. That's what I say. Amen. Paul does the same a couple places. Uh, the next passage was Isaiah 7.14. That's Christ. So a virgin, the virgin birth. And then we have 1 John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now already Okay, so the spirit of Antichrist refuses to say that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. What does John mean when he uses this phrase, Jesus Christ came in the flesh? I wrote an article about this one time. Or I mean, part of an article. Um, it is, it's, in, he unpacks it more in 1 John chapter 1. That which we've heard, that which you've seen, that, that our hands have handled the word of life that we declare unto you. So he's talking about the doctrine of the incarnation. Now the doctrine of incarnation come in the flesh is sort of the short phrase. It's sort of like when we use the term cross. It's a figure of speech called metonymy. A part that designates a whole, a bigger whole. So when we say cross... We can mean the actual wooden instrument of death, okay, the Jesus bar, or we can mean Christ's act of dying on the cross, or Paul talks about the message of the cross, which includes the coming of the Jewish Messiah, his sacrificial death on the cross, the blood atonement, the resurrection. So, in a sense, it's a term that carries with it the whole doctrine of the cross. When Paul says the preaching of the cross is the means God uses to save the lost, in other words, all of those facts are included just in that use of the word. So it's a shorthand for the whole event. It's not excluding the incarnation. It's not excluding the sinless life. It's not excluding the blood atonement. It's not excluding death, burial, and it's not excluding resurrection. All of that is essential to the doctrine of the cross. But when we say cross, we know all of that is what's meant. Now, when John says Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he means the virgin birth, the sinless life, he had a real physical body, and that he he literally did die, and that he was literally raised from the dead. All of that would be encapsulated in that phrase, Jesus Christ came in the flesh. It isn't like a, a shibboleth. Do you know what a shibboleth is? Tim does, don't you? Okay, tell us the story of Shibboleth. Well, there were disputes among the Israelites. Different tribes were warring at one time. I think it was the judges. And maybe it wasn't the Israelites, maybe it was their neighboring country. Anyway, some of them were tongue tied and they couldn't say Shibboleth. Yeah, they used it. So that they knew whether or not they should kill these guys, they would say, save Shibboleth. 
<laughs> right. They, they, so they had a different dialect, and they were trying to pretend to be the same people from this tribe. And their dialect didn't allow them to use those. It's like some languages have sounds that ours don't, and we can't say it, like a rolled R. Um, and so that's that. The shibboleth was a test, and if they couldn't say it, then they don't belong. So that word became a phrase that could be used in English that would indicate a word that you'd have to be able to pronounce to get in. So when I say Jesus Christ came in the flesh is not a shibboleth. I mean, it doesn't mean anybody that's able to say it automatically believes the entire doctrine. All right? It says anyone who does not confess that Jesus came, Christ came in the flesh. That doesn't mean doesn't have the ability to utter the words. That's shibboleth. Don't, I can't even say that word. That's not... It's even this thing, Jesus is Lord. Remember it says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except for by the Holy Spirit? But you can see false Mormons will say Jesus is Lord. It doesn't mean they don't have the ability to utter the words because they just can't get them out of their mouth. It means they will not confess it in its full meaning. Amen. All right? Amen. And the same way with this Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And if they'll, they'll say all kinds of stuff, but if they refuse to confess the fullness of the doctrine of the Incarnation in their teaching, that's how you know they're not from God. And there are a lot of people not from God that are passing for it because they say certain Christian phrases. But it isn't the saying of the phrases, it's the confessing of the doctrine of Christ in, the full, in His fullness. Amen. All right, does that make sense? Well, Norm, you, you started all that. <laughs> Or reading that verse, yes. And it, it also encompasses his deity being full man and full God. Right. And, and just hearing somebody say, you can't do that anymore. Right. So you need to find out what they mean by it, because they often don't mean the same thing. Exactly. There's been some disputes. I got a call from a guy in Texas who was contending with one of the major Christian broadcasting networks because they were putting on a guy who belongs to Ted Garner Armstrong's church, who doesn't believe in the Trinity. And uh, and I think that, so this guy, was he called me to ask my opinion on it, and I said, well, obviously the guy's a heretic. Well, but, you know, he gets by because he tells these people, well, yeah, I believe that God, that God was manifested as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Wrong answer. That's modalism. They won't confess the Trinity. They'll say that sometimes God appears as the Father, sometimes He appears as the Son, sometimes He appears as the Spirit, but there's, but there's no Trinity. But they're not all three together. Yeah, they're not three. You're yeah, right. And so what you do is you ask them, will you confess the Athanasian Creed? What's in that? Well, they'll say no, because they, they know they can't do that because it's so explicit. And so you're right, uh, Denise. A lot of people, a lot of, I'm going to write an article on this. Next article. Dick, I got it. I got my next article. It's right in here. Unless it leaks out. Because the other day I got all inspired and I was driving and I had a whole article all outlined in my head and I got home. I couldn't remember what it was about. (laughs) I told Diane, I know I had a great article. I just can't remember what it was. And then it came back to me. The article is going to be this. The problem with a private confession. Privatization of doctrine. And what's going on is this. Everybody can have 
they put some sort of boilerplate in their statement that these, these things we believe, and, and they don't, and long as they don't contend for them, because then you're contentious, long as you don't rebuke somebody else for whatever it is they believe, everybody gets to have whatever doctrine they want, and we're just going to have unity. And, and, the, and the doctrine not, is not preaching a pulpit, so people, they go, well, go look at the statement of faith. Well, if you're not confessing it, confessing is more than having something in your back pocket that you pull out in case somebody questions you. Confessing is actually going out in the public arena and declaring it, even if it costs you your life, if it costs you your popularity, if it costs you followers. That's confessing. But just saying, oh yeah, we believe that. Well, so do the demons. So there was somebody telling the truth, but it wasn't from God. Parts of it. Okay. So what ultimately is not confessed by false teachers is the gospel in its fullness. Alright, so that was 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Now 2 John 1, 7. Well, then 2 John 7. Well, there's only one chapter, and yeah, some. No, verse seven. <laughs> okay, so the deceiver and the antichrist does not confess Jesus coming in the flesh. And so this is what Hebrews 10 is about, that uh, coming in the flesh, part of, and here's another thing that's implied in that, and not just implied, but stated in it, God, his pre-existence. Amen. It's not just that he had a real body, because we have real bodies, but he came in the flesh means that he existed before he came in the flesh. So now you have his pre-existence, his virgin birth. And his real humanness and the whole doctrine of Christ is tied up in this as far as John was concerned. Now, liberals will, for instance, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the most famous liberal of the early 20th century, who uh, was the mentor of Norman Vincent Peale, who became the mentor of Schuller, who became the mentor of Warren, but... Um, what you have with Fosdick was he believed, he only believed Jesus was spiritually raised. He didn't believe he was bodily raised. Well, it made him a heretic. Death. To go back to where we started, when we started this thing, the second part of uh, verse 5. Yes. For clarification. When you're making that statement about the body you have prepared for me, are you saying it was in the Septuagint? It was not? It became a New Testament uh, interpretation. It, it was in the Septuagint, not in the Masoretic text. Right, and so the author of Hebrews chose, of course, he was using consistently the Septuagint anyhow. But the Septuagint has the word soma. And he makes a fairly heavy doctrine out of this that God, here's what he's saying. These animals, God wasn't pleased with that. But his own son came with a body, a body that was prepared for me, and the sacrifice of that body, he was pleased with. Amen. That's the point. Yeah, when I look, sorry about this part, but when I look at this thing, then I say, all right, there was a 
Well, uh, Well, why? Well, we make that mistake every Sunday. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the that's how we see it. Now, if, if anybody would want to research this, there's some interesting literature on this. Gundry, who I really do like his commentary on Matthew, Gundry makes a huge use of this, and he, he's controversial. And if you want to read about this. His introduction to his latest edition of his commentary, Matthew, talks about Midrash and how he believes it was legitimate, it was a legitimate form of literature. Josephus used it, and it's in a sense embellishing things to make spiritual points. He claims that's what Matthew did. Now, I don't, you know, I don't really care whether he's right or wrong about that because he's pretty clever at reading Matthew and seeing what Matthew's saying. So, but it is controversial if you're interested in some of these latest scholarly things. But all we can say is they had the Septuagint and they used it. And I, I think it had an apologetic appeal because the Jews weren't going to question it. The Jews weren't going to come along and say, because that's who he's talking to, is the Jewish audience. They're not going to get out their Masoretic text and look at it and say, no, you can't use the Septuagint. Because they used it and they accepted it and they thought it was inspired by God. We don't think it was inspired by God, but they did. So it would almost be like this. What if you were witnessing to a Jehovah Witnesses witness and you were an expert in their Bible? Okay? And they've doctored their Bible so that it takes out certain things so they want to avoid the deity of Christ. Well, what if you could take their Bible and find in their Bible proof of the deity of Christ and you used it to cite it to them, to convince them, because they already accept their Bible? That would be analogous to what's going on here. Okay? Right. Yeah, I don't think, it, or it wouldn't be any more invalid than if you went into a church that believed in King James only. Take your king, I'll preach out of King James, and and, uh, and that's the Bible they accept. Now, sometimes it differs from the Greek, but uh, if they'll accept it, as long as you're not going somewhere is theologically wrong. Okay, that's the best I can say about it. See, I inform people of these things. I could gloss this over. None of you would have caught it, probably, unless you were really digging into it. But I want you to learn what the issues are. So I think you'll learn more out of it if I just tell you about it. Okay? Unless you had your Masoretic text and you could have found that out. <laughs> Pull out that Masoretic. Okay, so Jesus comes with a real body. That's, that's important doctrine that ought to be preached. Verse Six, in whole and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Now, we read a number of cross-references, I think, last week on this, but let's look, there's even more. Uh, Keith, Psalm 147 and verse 11. Uh, I'm not an expert on Muslim doctors. Yeah, right. So they're denying... Exactly. They, yeah. Psalm 147:11. The Lord favors those who fear Him, those who wait for His loving kindness. Oh. <laughs> it's a good text. That's a, we like that verse. 
I have no idea what it has to do with Hebrews 10.6, but it's a very good verse. I probably wrote the wrong one down. Been known to do that. Well, we read some last week. Remember, uh, somebody asked last week, well, why would it say God doesn't desire sacrifices when He required them? Remember that question? Then we looked at Psalm 51 as a reference to that. And David, when he sinned, he realized that just bringing the bulls wasn't really what God was looking for, but he was looking for a contrite heart. Right. He said, if you love, if you love me, you give me your stinking sacrifices. God's so mad, but you won't obey me. I want obedience. That's better yeah. than any sacrifice, because right. then you love me. The heart. You can always throw out a pigeon like they did, and not in here, love the Lord. Like yeah. Isaiah said, I want a broken and contrite heart. You know, that was what Malachi was about, remember? Yes. Okay. does not delight in the strength of the horse, does not take pleasure in the life of a man, nor favors those who fear him and those who for his loving kindness. Okay, that's it. In other words, so it's a contrast. Yes. Which one is that? Okay. So, I think the, the consistent theme, God did require these sacrifices, but if they brought them in faith, realizing that they were sinners and they needed atonement, God was pleased in that. Amen. But if they brought them and said, alright, we did what we were supposed to do. Okay, God, now you're obligated to us. That's what, that's what Malachi was about. Yes. I know, and see that was I didn't get a whole lot of chance to get into that in the radio yesterday, but that is the real danger. Some you just say, okay, do you believe God loves you? Remember that thing that we were talking about in the, on the radio? Yeah, I believe God loves you. Do you believe that God has a plan for your life? Okay, I'll believe that. Do you believe that God Jesus died on the cross? I believe that. Okay, say this little prayer, and you'll be a Christian. So that's all I got to do. I say a little prayer. Yep. All right, tell me what to say. Say the prayer. Okay, I'm saved. And that is not necessarily conversion. Now, somebody could really believe, but then they would have a broken and contrite heart. Amen. And that, I, what's that? Yeah, right. Exactly. If you're just going to go to an evangelical church and then do what they say you're supposed to do, but nothing changes internally, you could, it would be the same thing in the New Covenant as they had the problem in the Old. You see, that's what MacArthur keeps talking about. And I think I hope people will listen to John MacArthur on this point. Is that uh, he said this, it's just a true thing that when God converts somebody, the reality of their own sin before God is driven home to the point where you actually tremble before God in some way. Okay, that, uh, that old, we got to sing that song at Calvary. Years I spent in vanity and pride, carrying out my Lord was crucified. And, and then it goes on later. It says, then I trembled at the law I spurned. And John MacArthur says that is something that's true for people being converted. Now, somebody says, they're out on the street and you say, well, you say this little prayer, you can go to heaven. Really? Okay, tell me what it is. All right, I repeated it. See you later. See you in heaven. Like a magic word, and then go forward, and it's not true, then it doesn't matter. 
You ever notice the Kenneth Copeland TV broadcast? He's got Jesus as Lord all over everything. And in fact, a lot of the people in that Word of Faith movement were buying these billboards. Have you ever seen those? They were, they were, because they were using the positive confession to take dominion. And they bought billboards, this is about 10 years ago, all over the United States. And you drive into whatever town and say, Jesus is Lord over Tulsa. Jesus is Lord over, and that, they, they were feeling like confessing that meant that the city was going to, everybody's going to quit sinning or some great things that happen in Tulsa. But I don't know that, from what I can see of his theology, that Kenneth Copeland's Jesus is Lord is the same thing that Paul's talking about. They, and tremble. Yeah, right. Well, the difference is some of them, the Christian, knows that Jesus is Lord and there's a heartfelt gratitude for what He's done for us and there's a faith in Him that uh, changes our lives. Satan and demons know Jesus is Lord, but they're angry about it. He didn't die for the sins of Satan and demons, that's true. Well, let's go to verse 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 7. I mean, verse 7. Hebrews 10, 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the roll of the book is written of me, and that pretty well followed what you read, Dan, to do thy will, O God. So Jesus, uh, the role, why does it say the roll of the book, do you think? Yeah, okay. That's right. They, that's how they didn't have, uh, uh, you know, uh, Barnes and Noble. <laughs> okay, so the so the the written document of the of the scriptures was in a scroll, right? And so, what's this claiming? The role of the book is of me. What is that? What claim is being made there? Yeah. In other words, yeah. In other words, the old the Masoretic text, the old the old the scripture, the Hebrew scriptures are about Christ. And so that we can find Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, in every book in the Old Testament. So in the, in the whole of, of the Scriptures is about the coming of Messiah. It says in the New Testament that the Scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Yes? Amen. Okay, yes. Well, I think I'll, I'll give you the New Testament answer that Tyler has something he wants to say. Uh, According to, let's take the Pentateuch, because depending on what sort of Judaism, but if you have more conservative Judaism, they read through Torah every year, and then they have a feast or a, a, a day of rejoicing. It's called, what is it, Simchat, 
yeah, Simchat Torah. My Jewish friend Max was telling me they did their Simchat Torah and gave me a chance to talk to him about the Lord. But so if they're going through the first five books, they're seeing, you know, certainly promises that the seed, the seed, Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But I'm not sure how they necessarily interpret that. But according to Paul in Second Corinthians, there's a veil. He says when they read Moses, there's a veil, so they can't see the glory of God. And the veil, of course, is the veil of sin and hardness. And it said, and it said, Paul says that the only thing that takes away that veil is the Holy Spirit. Amen. And when, when the Holy Spirit converts somebody, the veil's taken away, then they see. And then we have people that attend here that uh, are from Jewish background. Like if you get a chance to talk to Brian Beers, and when the veil takes away, they are so excited about the Lord. It, it, okay, Tyler. Yes, the hardness of it's a veil of unbelief. As a matter of fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls have there's a section of the Dead Sea Scrolls that's dated before the time of Christ that has Isaiah 53 intact. And there's websites that have, show it with a translation, literally from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and everything about my Messiah is in there. So they had it all. And the only thing that I think that could, that what Paul says is there's this veil that keeps them from seeing it. It's a it's a dark, veil of darkness. I think part of it too is the Midrash itself, the Jewish explanations. They've had many, many centuries and thousands of years to come up with their own explanations of what they mean. We have the scriptures here, and they believe that the oral tradition is also God's word. And so the oral tradition, a lot of sense, negates what's being said in the clear scriptures, and that's how they they approach both. Yeah, right. And also Paul's practice, Paul's practice, according to Acts, was he went into the synagogue and he contended with the Jews from the scriptures. That is their old scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And here's... uh, Sometimes people ask, well, okay, they've had all these scriptures for all these years and they've got their own traditions and who is this servant of Yahweh and uh, uh, um, Isaiah 42? Well, they say it's Isaiah, but you can prove it's not Isaiah because he's talking to, you know, there's all kinds of ways to prove it's not right. You say, well, then what are you going to do? You preach the scriptures because God has chosen the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And if you talk to people who've been, that are Jewish who've been converted, God, God broke through that hardness with His Word, with the Gospel, Amen. and including Old Testament Scriptures, and the light turns on and they get excited. Yes? Their 
who are needy. And they go out of obligation, but they're still not hearing, and they're not believing that God has ever heard and blessed them because God has rejected them. There's a, yeah, the lament is still alive and well in Judaism. And uh, actually, one of the interpretations of Isaiah that is out there is that the whole Jewish people themselves are the suffering servant. And that all the sorrows and sufferings are being laid on them as a people. Yeah, we are the people. We have to persevere in the world, and this is our lot in life. And we've got to try to overcome evil, or make. And some turn to liberalism, thinking that we have to try to make the world a better place because we don't have any hope and we don't know about the afterlife, things like that. And part of the difficulty in witnessing with the Jews today is the same as it was just after the time of Christ. They are looking for a physical salvation rather than spiritual. Yeah, or a national one. Well, that's very much true. They want the world problems to go away. And especially very intellectual Jews who are at the top echelon of literature and movies. and if you just There's sort of an ethos of, of lament. That the world is not supposed to be this evil. And, we do, and they don't give up belief in God, although some have become atheists. But most will say, we believe in God, but we can't understand why He makes it so lousy like this. Why is this world like this? Why do we suffer? Why do innocent people suffer? And I get that just from talking to people like my neighbor. When you tell them that you just got to keep coming back with the truth and trust that God will break through. Well, there's not only a veil for them. When I was 22 years old, me and the Jew and the Jews and a half, we both had a veil. He said Jesus was a good man. There's the veil. And I thought Jesus was God, but there's the veil. He was God, but he wasn't my Savior. We both had a strong veil. His veil was as strong as mine. We both damned, both saying nice things about Jesus, but talk about a veil, a veil over a billion Catholics, and there's not a billion Jews. So there's some pretty strong veils out there over yeah. Islam and on and on. It isn't just the Jews, but one day that veil will be lifted for all the Jewish nation. But yeah, we got a veil. We say all these sweet things about Jesus, but we don't know that he did the work. He finished the work. Somehow we're going to finish it for him. Christ plus everything else. Jesus is God. Jesus raised from the dead in the flesh. He's wonderful. We love him. But he can't save us. We've got to go through the Pope Mary. 50 years. Talk about a veil. We've got a million veils. Well, let me read about it. Uh, let's all turn to that. 2 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 12. All right? And I think that we can just take it for exactly what Paul says here. And as Dan says, this is true for all humans. Here he's talking particularly about people reading Moses and the people in the Old Testament. But frankly, all sinners have a veil. I agree. Okay, 2 Corinthians 3.12. 2 Corinthians 3.12. Having therefore such hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding in this mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Notice now, let's, oh, let me read on. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. So don't lose heart about your unsaved friends, your family, co-workers, anybody. Anybody. Don't lose heart. Because here's what he says. Verse 2. Look at this. For we renounce the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by a manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Because even if our veil, a gospel is veiled, is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves as bond service. Notice what Paul says. Don't be tempted to adulterate it because people don't want to hear it. Amen. Okay? And don't don't preach yourself. Don't present some glossed over candy coated version of, of the thing because they don't like the real one. And, and see, I think that's what really what's going on in modern evangelicalism is we preach our gospel that we believe and people don't like it. The masses don't come running in to hear about a blood atonement and and that they're sinners and they've spurned God's law and, and so on and, and that there's a real hell. And so uh we say, well, you know, I think they'll come with this other way. But Paul says, no, we renounce this. We're not going to be crafty. We're not going to adulterate. We're not going to change this so it sounds good to the veiled mind. His veiled, the veil is there because of Satan and their own sin. And it only comes away by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's thing was, preach it. Amen. Just preach it. The problem is because marketing won't take the veil away. Yeah, because it gives you something less. It gives you something less. I've been trying to explain this to people that just don't understand why I keep saying this and why I have a problem with the purpose-driven life and all this kind of stuff. I was talking to a guy the other day about it. So I found an analogy that seems to work when you're trying to explain this to evangelicals, why you have to preach the gospel the way it is. Um, have you ever gone... Have you ever witnessed to somebody who believes that they were saved because they were baptized when they were a baby? Amen. Oh, yeah, I, I have. Amen. And you say, you know, have you believed on Jesus Christ? Have you turned your life over to Christ? Have you been born again? Well, yeah, when I was baptized as a baby. Well, then you say, oh, no, that's not going to work. Well, then they'd say, no, you can't tell me that. Then they point to the passage in Peter. In fact, they were doing that on Jan. Somebody called in a Jan Markell show and was doing that. When he, the one on Roman Catholicism. Remember though? Did you hear that? This person called in and says, "Yeah, I was born again when I was baptized as, as a baby." So you don't need to tell. I don't need anything. What do you tell me? It's in a, in a sense, it's like making it a person further. Okay, because when you trust, you trust in something false. You're you don't want to hear the you don't want to hear the true. What's that? Yeah, yeah. So if you're if you hand somebody a lesser version of the gospel that doesn't actually convert them, but it gets them to believe they're saved, you may actually be hardening them against the real gospel. 
Now, when I use that infant baptism illustration to this guy that I, I think we're going to, I think he wants to debate me and he wants to defend Rick Warren, so I guess I'll just go ahead and do it. But I, I'm trying to, to tell him you don't want to do that, but uh, but I guess he still wants to, and he could understand that. Okay, he could. He said, "Okay, yeah, I can see why." But it, well, they can see that it, that Catholics that believe they're born again when they're baptized are trusting a false gospel, and it keeps them from listening to the true one. But when I tell him that evangelicals who say a little prayer with Rick Warren and think they're saved by that have the same problem, Amen. well, they won't listen to that. He said, "No, no, and I, I just can't get through." But it's the same thing, yes. Right. Well, it's sort of postmodern in the sense of modern I mean contemporary that everybody gets to believe what they want and whatever object of faith you have is good enough. And well, Ladies Home Journal, page 36. Rick Warren says, have faith in yourself. And he said, you should believe in yourself because God believes in you. Okay, now I quoted that on the radio. I, quote, I quoted that on, on the radio. Did you know you were the object of God's faith? Now, how backwards can you get? The heart of wickedness. Yeah. Know it. yeah. God needs to be the object of our faith, not us the object of His faith. Or why should we be the object of our own faith? You're absolutely right. Who's the object of our faith? Really? You spend too much time at airports. <laughs> You're all interconnected. Yeah. That, that's interesting that he would state it that way because I wrote an article one time on neo-paganism uh, five, six years ago. And one of the um, I read I read several books on it. There was an excellent book that was written by a British guy. He said neo pagans all believe in the interrelatedness of the soul. When you think of the Christ, if you invent Christianity or a over Christianity, the unity of the brethren becomes paramount. It's the same concept because if the unity of the brethren is paramount, and I need to forgive and overlook everything so that this interrelationship. Right. The biblical concept is that the reason you forgive others isn't that they're worthy. Is you forgive them because you're unworthy. God forgave you, Amen. so you should re- forgive somebody else who's equally unworthy. Out yeah, out of gratitude. Exactly. All right, so we're uh, saying, oh, there was a passage, John 6.38, Leif, did, could you do that one? John 6.38? Well, we're, we're making pretty good. Three, we're getting three verses a week. Every, I mean, <laughs> we're really cruising. No, Dick. Uh, I'm not getting my theology from there. I'm getting my heresy from there. Yes, I do. They had an article uh, yesterday in here. What was evil? 
I saw that. I know, and the the, the guy was crazy. I know, and well, the one that was kind of they were all confused. I thought, okay, yes. Okay, Jesus said, I came to do the will of him who sent me. So, that's here's what it says, to do thy will, O God. So, Jesus perfectly did the will of the Father. He said in John 8, I always do the things that please the Father. So, that's something that we know to be true about our Lord. Well, good discussion. And I, I really thought it was interesting discussion on that veil. So, I think what we learned today to summarize is the gospel as it is through the power of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that's going to take away the veil. Amen. And it's not going to go away by making adulterating the gospel. Uh, Paul says we don't preach ourselves. Amen. The missionary is not the message. Amen. Don't listen to that. This is false. They say the missionary is the message. Paul said, no, we don't preach ourselves. The message is Jesus Christ. Amen. We're just bond servants. Yes. That's odd. I don't know where they get that misinformation. Okay, here, let me let me stop this here. Okay, yes, Sam. 